The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of the Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss COP26, the latest COVID restrictions, and get brilliant and free advice from the border. We're also joined this morning by Paul Watterson, former Chief Executive of the Scottish Licensing Trade Association. And as always, if you want advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, simply email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Gentlemen, we took a wee break for COP26 as world leaders, politicians and celebrities descended in Glasgow to fight climate change and save the planet. So, from your perspective, was COP a resounding success or a dismal failure or something in between? How did you view it, Tom? Well, first of all, it's lovely to be back. I've, I've actually missed the show, Willie. Yeah, we've missed you, Tom. Oh, right enough, Willie. Um, I missed you too. Oh, thanks so much. Not so, you, Willie, though. You're just too much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to be back. So, the bottom line is, was COP26 a success? The truth of the matter is, we won't know until years ahead because COP26 was about words are the words going to turn into action? That's the one question I have. And there were good words. There were good words. But I kind of tend to listen to Bill Gates on this. And Bill Gates's point of view was that at the last COP, which was Paris 2015, innovation and clean tech was hardly on the agenda. But in Glasgow, it was centre stage, Willie. And he said this about it. Innovation is the only way the world can cut net greenhouse gas emissions from 51 billion tonnes to zero. So what does that mean for entrepreneurs in Scotland? I think entrepreneurs are at the heart of this because entrepreneurs are optimistic and you've got to be optimistic about the climate. They can collaborate and we really do need to collaborate in this. But the most important thing entrepreneurs do is they take action. So all the nice words, all the nice... I mean, it's amazing how they argue about the letter and one word changes it. And right at the end, India and China, you know, let us down, I would say. Because um, if if they're not going to cut their coal emissions, well, I, I don't know what it means for the rest of us. But that was a letdown. But let's hope that in the years to come, when we look back, Glasgow was the place where the world decided to take action. So, Willie, before I come to your view, did they allow you in the blue zone? <laughs> uh, I think they, they would have if I'd have asked. <laughs> uh, no, actually, I, I tried very hard to, to keep away from anywhere near the blue zone and not because of the colour of the zone. Um, I, I, I was fortunate that the, the three or four events that I attended were all outside of the city centre. So I was at two very good uh, conferences in the construction hub out in Hamilton. Very good. Uh, and I found them very informative and hopefully that will, you know, the, the work there will continue. Uh, and I was at the I was at Kelvin Grove, sorry, once uh, with the chamber with um, Stuart and uh, Prince Charles was there. Um, I, I think that COP26 overall... Um, 
you know, history will show that it will be a success because I think more and more people have, have waken up to the to the, the task that we have in front of us. And I think that um, it was it was sad to see the poorer countries, smaller islands, the Marshall Islands, all these places that are their whole life depends on it. And you could see how upset they were at the end and they were having to say, we're going to sign it, but we're going to sign it with a tear in our eye. And I think that was a real... You heard it in the head, Tom. When China and India didn't sign up to the wording, the first wording uh, on recently coal, the phasing out of coal, not the phasing down, I think that was a big, big disappointment to some of the smaller nations that are that are obviously going to be affected by the by the 1.5 or the increase in the, the 1.5 degree lift. Into it. But I think the one of the things that I was really pleased about all the headlines every night were not about windows getting smashed and cars getting smashed. I think the protesters came, they made their point, they made it in a civil way. I think the police need to take a lot of credit, they handled it really, really well. So I think overall, COP26, Glasgow will be remembered, hopefully was as a major step forward in the fight against climate change. And Willie, do you, do you think it was good for business in Glasgow or do you think it was a bit of a damp squid? I think, to be honest, it was a bit of a damp squib. Was it? I think, especially for, unfortunately, for the businesses in the city centre, I think it was it was more a hindrance than a help. Right. I'm sure some places would have done all right, some of the bigger places that were venues, but I think the the shops, the restaurants, we actually seen that, you know, the, the, the television highlighted some of the restaurants very close to the to finishing that were, normally we would be busy, that were not busy. Yeah, yeah well, that's, yeah. That, that's disappointing. Yeah. I had a great... Um, Panel. We did a Scottish Edge with Evelyn, a friend of the show, and Alison Rose, chief exec of NatWest RBS, um, put money up, and um, Eleanor from the Hunter Centre from Entrepreneurship, and we had businesses pitch to us on the net zero, and we invested £200,000 there on the day because I wanted to see us take action, not just talk about it. So that was probably my highlight. And the businesses and the innovation were fantastic and it was happening right here in Scotland and we invested on the day and those businesses will, will go and make a big contribution. I'm absolutely sure of it. Who inspired you most, Willie, you know, throughout the conference? Was there any particular speech or anybody, you know, even from protesters, who, who do you think made the, the most impact? Attenborough always inspires me. And I thought what I had a chuckle was they went to a lot of work. I mean, was he 95 now? They went to a lot of work to put that rail on the stairs so you got up and he never used it. I had a real good chuckle at that. But uh, yeah, his the way he gets his message across, he doesn't labour, you know, he's like short, sharp, here's two minutes, hits you right between the eyes. So for me, he was the, the most inspirational. Tom? Yeah, well, I mean, when before COVID, <laughs> we actually brought, Sir David Attenborough to Hunter Foundation event in Edinburgh and um, that was in the goodness that was in the February or the, the January of 20 because COP was supposed to be in November and we thought we'd set this up and his speech there which wasn't at COP but it was a kind of precursor was just he brought the whole place maybe 900 people Willie and you could hear a pin drop because he just put it so simply and succinctly. Um, so I'm a big believer in that. I I think Bill Gates is is leading a charge here about clean tech. 
he's putting his money where his mouth is. He always does. He's talking about innovation. Um, and, you know, President Obama just best orator in the world right now, I, I, I would say. Well, you said earlier that you're worried it could be all talk and little action. Do you think there's a way we can actually hold our politicians and business to account to make sure that we deliver on some of these targets? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is... I think we have moved quite a long way. Now, the, the protesters would say not, not quick enough and I'd probably agree with them. But um, I think nobody's, nobody's questioning the science anymore, Willie, which they were maybe even five years ago. There was still a debate. Oh, now I think we all live with it. We can all see it. We can see the climate has changed. It, it's not a debate. And therefore... We are moving on. So how, you know, it, it comes back to, you need to give people hope. That you need to be optimistic that you as an individual, your little bit can help. Because if you lose that, you just lose all hope. And I think there are many practical ways now. And I think as a consumer, you've got a big voice because you need to watch the companies that are just greenwashing the stuff out. You know, they're just doing it for the tick in the box. And the consumer's very powerful. And if they make their choices to say, no, that's not good enough. I don't think you as a company are doing enough, then I'm going to buy over here. I think that's a powerful change element. Willie? I believe that this is a huge opportunity for Scotland. If you look back over the last 300 years, when you looked at advances in technology, 250 years ago, we were the best shipbuilders in the world. Right, and back then that was the internet. Shipping was the internet, and we were the best at it. You know, and during the Industrial Revolution, we've got giants. You know, I don't think there's another country in the world right contributed so much to the Industrial Revolution as Scotland did. And and I really, I, I, honestly, this is I'm not getting carried away here. I think there's a unique opportunity for Scotland to be at the forefront of how we go forward. You know, the, the, this is the let's call it the Green Revolution. Right, and I think that we've got clever people here. And if if people in Scotland want to make COP twenty six a success, we should we shouldn't be uh, stop talking about it now that all the barricades are away and the people have all gone. We should actually take the baton and we should run with it. We should actually set up. I, I see today that the city council are announcing again about the task force for the city centre. Where's the green task force? Right, where's the you know where's the people that have left behind for COP and we're going to take the baton and run with it? I mentioned that uh, a few weeks ago. Some of the things that we know that we're definitely going to need, you know, we need brick, we need steel, we need insulation, we need all of these things. We should be asking ourselves, why can we not make and manufacture all of these things in Scotland? Right, we have a, you know, we've got a natural resource, we've got the land to do it, we could build more trees, I think, than anybody else, I think, in, in, in the UK. So I, I think for us, there is a huge opportunity for us, for us to lead the way that we should take the baton and say, we're going to show you how we do it. And I also think, you know, to help the economic recovery, which I believe we're going to need here, this is definitely, we should use COP and all the things around about being green as the as the catalyst for, for the springboard for to get the economy going. An opportunity for businesses in Scotland then, Tom? Huge. I mean, as well as said, you don't want to make too big a thing, but 
thinking about it, Scotland invented the modern world with the Enlightenment. Can Scotland now save the modern world? That's the big question in my mind. And I was in London last week and um, I hosted a dinner with Matthew Syed, the journalist, and he got me thinking that that was the whole point. I had chief execs of businesses we invest in, etc., around the table and charities we invest in as well. And his whole thing was about making better decisions, making better strategy. And he came up with the word diversity. And you think, oh, right, okay, what does that mean? But he he took it to a different level. He said, this is about cognitive diversity. And when I thought about it, Willie, Scotland invented the modern world with the Enlightenment when the church, science, business, all the different areas of Scotland's civic society came together and we made better decisions. And when I look at how government write policy, they don't have this cognitive diversity to come up with the right answer. And we need to keep pushing this because if we're going to come up with the answers, we need to listen to everybody who's interested. Yeah, and I, I think what we should do is we should show the way here by picking up on the low-hanging fruit. Right, a lot of the things that we're talking about, a lot of the things that we're talking about at COP we're going to, is going to cost billions to make a difference. There's things that we can do right now immediately, right, that would make a difference that we don't need to spend a penny. Like, why does the Scottish government not adopt the, the and follow Switzerland where the government sets everyone's thermostats at 21 degrees? Right. That would probably that would probably reduce our emissions by about ten percent. Wouldn't cost a penny. So things like this, where you want to be, now if we want to be radical and say we're going to put in all the cycle lanes, we're going to do all this, whatever. Let's do something that you know. No matter how much money you've got when you live in Geneva, if you want to build a forty million pound, fifty million pound, you cannot install air conditioning. Is that right, right Willie? Yes, yeah. right. So no, so these small things that make a big, big difference. And then what I really love, you know. Professor Sir Jim MacDonald and the guys at Glasgow University, you know, Anton, is let's challenge the things that people are telling us is the right way to go. We've talked about it for weeks and weeks. I'm exhausted talking about heat pumps. Right. <laughs> I'll guarantee you that if we set up a lab out at the construction hub and had two um, houses side by side and we looked at the different ways, of, I'll guarantee you we would come up, Scotland would come up with something much, much better than heat pumps. Yeah. Love so, it. Love it. Tom, you talked about making better decisions. Do you think any of our politicians are capable of making better decisions? Are there any that stood out that you've heard through COP26, whether it's Scottish government or UK government? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're an easy target just to say they're all rubbish. Um, they're not all rubbish. A few of them are rubbish. <laughs> there's been some... Do you, want, do you want to highlight those <laughs> well, there's, on the show? <laughs> there's, there's been some interesting things going on in Westminster, that's for sure. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, but let's not go there because it's, it's not really to do with business or maybe a second job, Willie. <laughs> but, um, but I think when COVID hit and the government, Scottish government come out with, oh, here's, here's who's going to look at it, and I bust a blood vessel because it was, it's, a, it's the same old thinking. And I said, that's going to come out with a report that sits on the shelf. And that's exactly what's happened because we're now 18, 24 months in. Willie and I spoke about it. I said, that 
that is not going to come up with the answers because there's no... And this Matthew Syed thing's now rhyming with me. You know, cognitive diversity it just means people from different walks of life with a different point of view. And as leaders, we need to give them a platform to say, listen, and, you know, through our work in the Hunter Foundation, I could not believe when we're trying to bring about positive social change, that the people who write the policy usually never speak to the people they're doing it to, Willie. Now, how can that be the right way? I think it should be, if you're Nicola Sturgeon today, just say, stop it. Stop it today. If you're a policy writer, then you need to put at the heart of your policy is the people that you're doing it to and do it with them. Don't do it to them. And in business, if we ignored their customer, Willie, we wouldn't be in business. I'm not expecting politicians to come up with the answers. What I am expecting them is, is, is now to listen more than ever. And at the, at the moment, politicians will only come and tell you what their special advisors advise them on anyway. It's, it's, it's not fair to ask a politician to be an expert in all the various fields and maybe the portfolios that they'll be running. But I think that more than ever, uh, would just my my plea to the government would be is if it, whether it's the special advisors or whether it be the ministers themselves, is really to listen deeply to what business has to to offer. I think we've been saying it, and it's one of the reasons I got involved with this show, Willie, because you set out the stall that we want to help, and sometimes I think there's too much pressure because politicians believe they should have the, all the answers. And they don't. I don't have all the answers. Well, he doesn't. You don't, Donald. But as leaders, we convene and we put people in a room and we listen and then we decide the way forward. And then people feel part of it. If it's just done to you, first of all, you, you don't get a great answer and people don't feel part of it because somebody's just went, this is what we're doing. And I think politicians have got to just go right. And we've been trying to encourage the people who make business policy decisions in Scotland to listen. And I think it's still, they're still getting a C- in my report card. Well, Nicola Sturgeon has shown leadership because she's decided or said the Cambo development shouldn't go ahead. I'm sure she was in two minds a few weeks ago, but uh, maybe COP has inspired her. The right decision for Scotland, Tom? No, it's not the right decision. Um, again, what do I know about oil fields? But Sir Ian Wood does. And he doesn't have, you know, he's got no money in the game anymore because he's sold out and he's doing fantastic charity work. Ian's point of view, which I agree with, is that this needs to be a transition over time. If we just stop it dead today, it will mean less Scottish jobs and we need to import the energy from somewhere else anyway. That cannot be the right decision for Scotland. Obviously, the Campbell decision was made 20 years ago. Obviously, it's got to be green-lighted now. And I think that um, this is a, a perfect example of what happens when you go into coalitions, right? And this is pressure from partners and coalitions. Uh, and I think that's behind this. But it'll be interesting now because how do we balance the books, especially in Scotland, if we start saying no to oil fields? But I think Ian Woods is right. Let's get them greener. Let's get the technology right. So, I mean, we've just mentioned that. Why would you be saying no to oil fields when no one's agreeing about coal? <laughs> right? So if you, if you don't start get to the hub of the, pro the, nub of the problem in coal, then you can start looking at, at um, all the rest of the fossil fuels. And 
from what I've now read up on and listened to, and again, something that Scottish government's against, nuclear is part of the answer. It's got to be part of the answer. If we don't have nuclear as part of the answer, where does that leave us? Next week, we're likely to see the COVID vaccines passports being extended to theatres, cinemas and all licensed premises. Is that a sensible precaution or an overreaction? And I know we'll hear from Paul Watterson later on on that and he'll have some pretty strong views, I'm sure. But Tom? So, I'm really torn by this. I don't know about you, Willie, but because I hate government telling me what to do. <laughs> um, I don't like anybody telling me what to do, apart from my wife, obviously. But... When it's a selfish decision and it only affects you, I think that's fine. You can make your own decision. COVID is something that affects many others and your own selfish decision can affect many others. So, on the one hand, don't like Big Brother telling me what to do. On the other hand, there's a larger decision here and I really do want to encourage everybody to get their vaccinations and their boosters and their flu shots because it affects other people. So if I said, no, I'm not getting it, I could be doing harm to others. And that's not really acceptable. Therefore, I'm, I kind of understand the COVID passport. I kind of understand it. And why not? Really? So, yeah, I, I think um, the government's backs to the wall and obviously they're listening to the medical advisors and all the indicators are not good. So for me, if it means that you can open, that you can open the normal hours, that you can serve in a normal way, then I don't see why not that people would not, you know, get a, a passport. And if that's what I need... Uh, to travel, I had to travel to Paris two weeks ago. I had to go through all that rigmarole. That's fine, but at least I could go there. It wasn't a case of sitting at home saying I can't go because of. So if if it means that the hospitality industry can get up and running to some sort of you know normal, then I think um, then let, let's do it. But it, it's obviously a hindrance to trade. What about wearing masks in more settings? Because the Scottish Government Health Advisor Debbie Schreeder very keen on that. Do you agree we should be wearing masks in the workplace? Well, again, um, I was in London last week. No masks. It's it's down to you. And the Scottish Government and the Welsh Government, have, there's a diversion of, of opinion here. So, again, do I like wearing a mask? Not really. But if I'm protecting myself or my family or people who I don't know, then yes, if that's the price we pay, Willie, because the worst thing, the worst thing, can, can we all remember being locked up in the house? It was terrible. Businesses, the economic, the mental health, that was the worst thing ever. So if it means getting double jabbed, which I am, I'm going for my booster soon as well, if it means wearing a mask and we don't lock down, absolutely. Willie? I can only talk from my own experience in my own head office. Um, we've got, a, I think, maybe less than 6% of the total occupancy of the building. So social distancing is, you know, we can take it to a whole new level. We can be 10 metres between everyone. So I think if I can do that, 
I would prefer it if then the, the people had the option, but I wouldn't mind if people didn't want to wear the mask. But in my building, when you're moving from station to station or you're going to the canteen or the coffee shop, everyone wears their mask when they're on the move. But um, I don't see my office being back to full capacity within the next 12 months. So wow. social in places where you're close together, then I would definitely recommend that you wear a mask. But if not, I'm quite relaxed. So, so Willie, you, you've got a lot of people yeah. um, there in the Gorbals. And did, what, what, We've did got I 900 worked in the head office and we, we don't, we're not operating with 90 at the moment. Everyone's wow. working from home. And is it, yeah, is it working. working? Yeah, the customers think it's good. That's why I'm saying that I'm in no rush at the moment until you know we're a bit further ahead and fighting you know the virus. So for us, you know, and, and 90 is a big number. Most days would be 60. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow, yeah, indeed. And talking of numbers, Willie, I think you were right because we spoke uh, many weeks ago about inflation. And you <coughs> forecast it was going to go sky high. It's now hit four point two percent for October, and that's more than the uh, more than double the two percent Bank of England target. So, are, are we too slow to raise interest rates, Tom? So, Willie was right, and I seem to be buying the Christmas lunch, um, which is fine. Hopefully, the inflation in the Christmas lunch isn't too high, and. Um, are we too... So this is a balancing act, Donald. This is a balancing act. You don't want to put up interest rates and choke. I mean, the amazing figure that I read a couple of days ago is that um, furlough's finished, but the, the unemployment rate is down. So the things we were all worried about, well, and you and I really worried about the unemployment, didn't seem to come to light. And there's... People have have taken COVID, they've changed lifestyles. Yes, there's, you know, I think it was 390,000 people left because the workforce because of Brexit, etc. But unemployment has not gone up, which is incredible. And therefore, we don't want to choke economic um, activity, job creation, by putting up interest rates. Um and does interest rates, is it going to control inflation anymore? Is that an old way of thinking? You know, these are above my pay scale, if I'm perfectly honest. Willie? I um, I watched um, Tom's favourite politician, Richie Sunak, on the TV <laughs> during the week. And uh, I think he's actually playing a free card trick. <laughs> Seriously, I don't think they're skewing the numbers to suit themselves. <laughs> Right, you know, so this uh, 1.5 million vacancies and the most people employed, I will guarantee you that within the next six months, you will not see that upbeat Richie Sunak in front of a camera. He will disappear. He'll be nowhere to be seen to do interviews. Unfortunately, at the moment, and as we go through into the new year, I will guarantee you that uh, they will not be describing this as good news, the, the situation. I think that at the moment, all the numbers are all screwed because of, of COVID and because of furlough. I believe that there's thousands and thousands of people in the next few months that will be unemployed. Oh, I feel another bet coming on I here, Donald. I was just going to say, you know, well, there's a bet. On double the, of quits, uh, double of quits. <laughs> yeah, double of quits. Anyway, coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Paul Watterson, the former chief executive of the Scottish Licensing Trade Association. 
Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. Welcome back as we're joined by Paul Watterson, former Chief Executive of the Scottish Licensing Trade Association. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterNockey. But before we chat to Paul, in the latest of our brilliant series in Great Scots, we tell the story of John Loudon McAdam. John Loudon McAdam was the Scottish inventor of the McAdam road surface. In 1770, McAdam went to New York City, entering the counting house of a merchant uncle. He would return to Scotland in 1783, now boasting a considerable fortune. McAdam would soon purchase a large estate in Ayrshire where he became a road trustee in his district. He had grown increasingly frustrated with the poor conditions of local highways and wanted to do something about it. At his own expense, he began a series of experiments in the art of road making. In 1798, he would move to Cornwall where he would continue to take his experiments to the next level, this time by government appointment. He recommended that roads be raised above the adjacent ground for good drainage and covered first with large rocks, then with smaller stones, and lastly bound with fine gravel. When later appointed Surveyor General of Bristol Roads, he would finally be able to put his theories into practice. In 1823, a parliamentary inquiry into roadmaking saw his views fully adopted by public authorities, and in 1827, he was appointed Surveyor General of Metropolitan Roads in Great Britain. Macadamisation, as it was called, improved travel enormously, and the process was quickly adopted in other countries, most notably in the United States. The first Macadam Road in North America, the National Road, was completed in the 1830s, and by the end of the 19th century, most of the main roads in Europe were also subject to the Macadam process. Today, McAdam is noted as one of the finest engineers in Scottish history. His three sons and four grandsons all followed him into the profession. His second surviving son, James Nicol McAdam, nicknamed the Colossus of Rhodes, was knighted for managing the Turnpike Trusts, which were so vital in maintaining the improved roads. This particular knighthood, it is said, was previously offered to his father, who politely declined. McAdam died in 1836, aged 80, but through his lasting innovation, his work lives on. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. Certainly one of the finest engineers in Scottish history, Willie. What a nickname, the Colossus of Rhodes. Unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. But um, we can talk about the Enlightenment, we can talk about the last 250 years. The part that McAdam played in this is, is sensational throughout the world. And back to Tom's point, there was a government listening to an expert. Right, not a spad, not MDLs, a guy who was an expert in his trade. And all we're saying is nothing has changed in 250 years. <laughs> so a good Ayrshire boy, born in Ayr, moved to Casfern in his early years. And, um, you know, as I, as I said earlier when we were talking about COP, Scotland invented the modern world. And look at these innovations. I mean, Tarmacadam, my goodness. You know, penicillin, the telephone, the TV, where are these heroes today? Let's get them, let's nurture them, let's celebrate them, let's finance them and let Scotland lead the world again. 
But what is this? This is the chain reaction. When McAdam developed the roads, Dunlop came along with the tyre. Not a great score. That'll be probably another story for weeks to come. But between the two of them, I remember reading in the Enlightenment that they 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 reduced the travel time from Edinburgh to Glasgow directly. I think by seventy percent. You know, and I think that uh, it's just a pity the travel time to Edinburgh and Glasgow has went up <laughs> double in the last few years. But again, this is, you know, we talked about it earlier. You know, if we want to be ahead of the whole green revolution, let's look at history. Let's look at history and the things that we've done back then and let's find the McAdams and Dunlops and, and Flemings. Let's find all these guys today that's going to help us. And let's teach it in our schools and put pride back in our nation. Absolutely. Anyway, it's a brilliant, brilliant, another well, great score. If he was around, around just now, do you think they would be in favour of completing the Julian of the A9? <laughs> <laughs> or filling in the potholes? Or filling in the potholes? Is it good for business to Julian? Or should we be green? If people are still listening to the family, I think the motorway would all be complete. <laughs> I think we'd definitely have light bulbs all the way in the M8 for Edinburgh to Glasgow, which is an embarrassment. What an innovation, man. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you asked me that, Donald. <laughs> well, talking of laying the foundations for success, we're delighted now to welcome back Paul Watterson, former Chief Exec of the Scottish Licensing Trade Association. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Pleasure. Morning, Paul. Thanks very much for the invitation. You've heard earlier we were discussing COP26, so... How has the jamboree been for the hospitality trade? Well, like all these situations and these events, there's been winners and there's been losers. Um, the winners, I think, as far as hospitality were concerned, were people that had bookings from agencies that were looking after um, people that were coming over, delegations and others that were coming. They seemed to do not too bad out it. Um, hotels did very well out it, and outlying hotels because of the capacity issues. Um, losers were significant amount of losers. Um, people who had businesses in town, for instance, and people couldn't get to them. Town right. was quiet. People didn't stayed away from town. Regulars didn't come in. Um, obviously, tourists, local, you know, British tourists weren't weren't about, they stayed out of Glasgow. Um, and I think there was, a, there was a point which has been said earlier on where the authorities didn't listen to operators. Operators had asked for certain information, they didn't get it. There was a thought that there could be some sort of legacy in terms of trying to do something, for instance, in Finiston, to, to close the road there and do um, pedestrianisation and so on. Even... Even for the for the time during COP, there was there was this pessimism around it before it started. I think, and of course COP itself, there was a pessimism surrounding that. I think that pervaded through it all. This thought that there would be a lot of talking and nothing would happen, and also because hospitality's been closed for a while, I don't think there was investment in places. I think a lot of places would have done something based around COP to highlight it and, and make the place more attractive. I don't think that happened either. So all in all, there was some winners, but it, for many, there was no legacy from it. And for many uh, places, it, they didn't do very well out at all. Do you think the messaging, particularly from the Scottish government, was wrong? Because it was all about, don't come into Glasgow. 
<laughs> I've never seen it so quiet. Walk, you know, we've got our offices in the city centre, and <laughs> it was just. But all the restaurants nearby were, were virtually empty. Yeah, it was. It, it seemed to be the opposite from other events that we've had, where it was played down. You know, if you'd go back to the Commonwealth Games, I know it's a different event, but that was a great build-up to that, very optimistic during it. The place looked a lot better. You know, if we can go right back to when the Rotary was on years ago. You know, there was a lot of, lot of enthusiasm for that from the authorities. This time it seemed to be played down and there was definitely a lack of information. I mean, people were, were couldn't get down certain roads. The whole of Finiston, where there's a lot of vibrant places, places yep. where you want people to go, was more or less closed. People just couldn't get down there. And as you say, coming into town, people just stayed away. You know, one thing that's came over loud and clear was lunch times in town, was just there was nothing at all. No. Nothing floating about at all. Do you think we'll recover that lunchtime trade? I, I was really quite shocked at how easy it was to, to go in anywhere uh, during COP, in the city centre. Finiston, obviously, a bit busier. I think people... You know, it's up to us to get them back again. Yes, we've that's got to do. Yeah. We, we've got to make sure. But as was said already, the authorities, unfortunately, don't listen to professionals, um, and that creates its own problems. They just seem to. Sometimes when you ask them to do something through, you know, your experience, they seem to tend to do the opposite sometimes, and you don't understand why they're doing it. Paul, I got the impression that a lot of the decisions were made out with the local authority. You know, these were like, this was London decisions. You know, here's a, here's a rule, like, like finishing. I mean, Tom was trying to get into Radisson Red there and he yeah. had a booking and couldn't get near it. Yeah, you know, so, so I think a lot, a lot was, here's a rule, it's just a rule, nothing to do with you know, the local authority, but um, you can't get near the street. And I think a lot of that wasn't thought out well. Well, I think politics come into it a lot, Willie. I think that, you know, Westminster was in this position where Glasgow had it and it was focused for the world. But, you know, the independence, we don't want them to get too much. We want to keep the Scottish government out of this. I think there was a lot of that going on, yes. which was very unfortunate because it creates yeah. that division. And then, of course, you have the local council being criticised for political reasons. Yeah. You have the strikes and you have all that negativity before it, which, which, tends, which tends to keep going and as I said the COP itself yeah. there was a lot of lack of enthusiasm for what was going to happen at that so you've got all of that going on un, un, under it and it affects us yeah. in, our, in our businesses Well it wasn't a good start when the first morning I think people were in the rain for four hours queuing up to get in I don't think that was a Aye. good start Yeah, It set the tone So so Paul what what do you think I was I was in London last week it mm -hmm. was going like a fair mm -hmm. um, my wife was in Manchester you know it was, she said the city centre was too busy. So what what can Glasgow do? Because Glasgow, you know, the second city of the empire, what's what's going wrong, Willie? But more importantly, Paul, what can we do to get it back up where it belongs? Well, if you go back not that long ago, Glasgow had a, a terrible reputation. And over the last however long, it's 20, 30 years, we've actually got better and better. And I always say, standing in the the pub when I was 18, you know, in those days when it was every man for themselves. <laughs> Even you know, and, um, not only did we did we clear the pub, we cleared the street and you know there was police everywhere. <laughs> you know, if you look back and I say, if I could have looked forward to now or pre-COVID, I would have been delighted at right. the, the quality and the pride in Glasgow. 
you know, COVID will be a reset for a lot of things. But we've all got to get together. Yes. And this is the thing, you know, governments have got to listen to professionals in every business. And if we're given the flexibility to do it and the financial resources to do it, instead of keeping taking the money back, then, you know, we can get on with it. That's our job. Is, is to get people in, but we've got to have we've got to have the framework to work in, and we don't seem to have that. And you, Paul, as a as a former head of a of a trade body, um, I know um, Kenny Blair down at Buzzworks mm-hmm. in Ayrshire has has joined up yeah, trying to yeah. trying to get there. But I mean, everybody's still, in my opinion, frustrated. Would that be fair that they're not really getting listened to? Yeah, uh, politicians are good at listening, but actually. What do they do with what they've heard? Well, they, they go and do whatever they wanted in the first place. Well, or is that not fair? Well, we've had a, a meeting every week since since COVID started with right. the government. And it's not one of these big 40, 50 people in a Zoom call. It's right. five or six people okay. plus government officials. Right. We've had it every single week wow. since it started, every Wednesday. Right. So it's on today. Right. And they haven't taken one thing, not one thing that we've asked them. Come on. To do, and there's been some things that are relatively easy. For instance, when you bring in vaccine passports, please do not say in any media that it's for nightclubs because it's not for nightclubs, it's for all late opening premises. What will happen is people will turn up at a late opening premises that isn't a nightclub but it's got dancing in it because they're hybrid places, and people will turn up at them with no passport and they won't get in because you keep saying it's nightclubs. Very next day, in the in the parliament, this is for nightclubs. You know that. I mean, what? That's nothing, right? In comparison to what we're going through, I mean, that's it just shows you that really. they will not listen to you. Yeah. And you know, every week since COVID started, we've had these meetings, and we bring up different points. Of course, they'll disagree with some of it. Well, I get that. I, but how can you go all that time, all these months? Not years, one thing. Not one thing. It's a pretty damning statement that they've not listened to one wow. single thing well, in all these meetings, you know, and this is the right forum to get that message across. Can you give us a few more examples of things you're looking for and they're basically ignoring you? Well, there's so, the whole the whole situation, I mean, if you meet somebody for one, one or two meetings, well, fair enough, you can't make them. Through all this time, surely they can know that there's certain things are said that they can trust. There's people that they can trust there. We're all trying to do the best. We understand we won't get it. You know, but if you, if, if you look at the vaccine passport situation, just as an example, we told them exactly what we thought would happen if vaccine passports were introduced within one part of the trade and they didn't listen. We told them it, it would have a real detrimental effect on nightclubs, that late opening premises. Um, we told them, don't differentiate between different parts of the trade because there aren't any different parts of the trade anymore. There's only one licence. So a hotel, a restaurant and a bar are all one licence now. It changed in the 2005 Act. So you can't differentiate because it's all, all the different licences. You used to have restaurants and pubs and they're all together now. So don't differentiate. What do they do? They talk about cafes. There's no such thing as a cafe. So it deflects the whole argument because they get slaughtered for that. You know, that's another... There is no such... What's a cafe? There is no such thing in law. Yeah, but you know what we mean. No, we don't actually know what you mean. What do, what do you... You know, why, why do you do that? 
when you'll get into this problem with them. We told them it would happen, and that's exactly what happened. So why not listen? These are ju- these are not actually particularly important in the grand scheme of things, but within when you're trying to get a message over, and you're trying to control this thing, it ruins your confidence. People start to question everything that you're doing, and that's so, not a good thing. So, Paul, have you looked at other cities? So, like the the city of Manchester is somewhere where the 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 business community, I mean, it's. It's booming in terms of there's some really big businesses. I'm an investor in the Hut Group, which has created 8,000 jobs there. Um, you've got Boohoo based down there. So young people, good jobs, good wages, and that leads to a vibrant economy. But, I mean, I don't know anything about the, you know, you've got Andy Burnham down there. Yeah. Is that is that one of the things we need for the city of Glasgow? Do we need... Someone who's got a bit of power, Willie, who's who doesn't listen to central office. Uh, I mean, is that a is that a blueprint or a green print, whatever we want to do here? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I think part of the problem that we have is this tension that often exists between local authorities and government. The way round it's difficult. You were talking about pride earlier on. You should have pride, and it's difficult. But you should get people working together on on things. I know that's words, but it's true. You must get everybody working together because we've all got the same aims and aspirations. And within our trade, actually, at the moment, the the trade associations are lucky because they've got people that are all wanting the same thing. Right. They all want to do what's right, and we're lucky. And it's not often you get that because you know you can get... You can get conflicts. Difference of opinions, yeah. Do you you think there's leadership at a political level for Glasgow in the same way as, say, Andy Burnham is doing for Manchester? There seems to be a lot of... Again, I I go back to this thing about the political tensions. Andy Burnham, highly respected as far as I'm concerned. You know, ex-MP, comes over very well you know, great PR, you know, good personality. And any time I've heard them speaking, I've got to agree with everything he says. It's common sense, really. Yeah, it seems to be. seems to be. And I think knowing a couple people down there, they seem to listen a bit more. They seem to have that pride in Manchester at the moment that maybe we've got to push. I mean, what do you think, Willie? Because you're... Manchester's a good example. Um, Even before Andy, when when Mr Stringer was in charge of the, the council... They, they had this great attitude that uh, they didn't care what London said, that they had a complete understanding of what they had to do locally. And when everyone else was in its knees, Manchester was booming. And it was all because of that go-ahead, as you say, working together, listening to everybody. Over the last 20 years, during that leadership, I mean, Manchester's came from being, you know, a rundown mm-hmm. somewhere that you wouldn't go for a weekend now to being, like, the number one place in the UK that's a that's a destination for stag nights, hen nights, all of this stuff. It's the number one place to go to. So I think that, that that's a great example of how leadership, right, can make a difference. And that leadership was absolutely listening. You know, ma- you know Manchester now, Tom says, it was it, they call it the city of tall cranes. Right, there's not an economic boom happening anywhere else in Britain like it's happening in Manchester. But I think part of the problem here is we're in this limbo between an independence referendum, Westminster running it, 
And let's be honest, success for anybody that doesn't want independence is failure. It's failure of Scotland. Because the more failure we get, you know, that means... Oh dear, you, Paul, you're, you're, you're making true. me slip my wrist this morning. Well, <laughs> Come on. Oh, I'm so, try, try <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, but, yeah. But oh but dear. It, but it is failure. And, you know, there, there are politicians lining up and they're hoping for failure, and oh, that, that's where I, where I get this. Do thing you really about think that? Working eh? together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you if you're if you're anti independence, then you want you want Scotland, you want to be constantly criticising what's happening in Scotland. Anything and, and that's good. Anything. Paul, and, and it's interesting, um, you know, how be it from me to tell the Scottish government how to to win the argument. But we've just been discussing all morning about how Scotland could really, rather than criticising whatever the UK is saying here, with the whole green technology, with the whole way forward, taking the baton back up, we could actually lead the way. Rather than sitting and saying, no, you're wrong about this, you're saying, no, we're right about this, here's what we should be doing, we're going to show you what mm-hmm. to do. So kind of, in a backward way, I'm kind of agreeing with you, but I'm also saying to the Scottish government, here's a way for you then not to have that approach, to have the... No, have the, the successful approach to saying how we're better than you rather than saying no, everything that you're telling us yeah, is yeah. bad. Well, that's what I mean. You end yes, up with yes, this yes. on both sides. Yeah. You know, yes. it's, not, it's not on one side. Yeah. Steering it away from uh, politics for a minute, <laughs> if I can. Let's go back to the meeting you're having every week. Who's actually there? What politicians are there? What health advisors? Who are the ones you're talking to? Well, there's a sprinkling of politicians come every so often, but mainly the civil servants there. Right. Yeah. So on behalf of the Scottish government. Yeah. But and anybody, you know, if we get anybody from Glasgow City Council, are there any spads or any no, health advisors? Scottish, Scottish government. government. So who? Well, who are the civil servants reporting to? Who's the minister that well, they should be fed back? Hopefully, to? they're reporting to them to the, the cabinet of Scotland. You know, the the, the first minister and and so on. That's what yeah, you have you have an advisor for the economy. You have an advisor for uh, yeah. I don't know if they've got a you know the, a leisure. Uh, you know somebody's got a portfolio for leisure and entertainment, whatever it may be. But you'd like to think that the spads on the call were taking it back to the people who matter. There'll be two whoever's, or three people. Whoever's on the call, they're not doing their job. So we should we should out them in the show. <laughs> Indeed, I think we've just done that. Anyway, you're listening to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. More chat with Paul Watterson, former Chief Exec of the Scottish Licensing Trade Association, after this short break. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Go Radio Business Show and we are chatting to Paul Watterson, the former Chief Exec of the Scottish Licensing Trade Association. You've been quite controversial earlier, you know, having (laughs) a go at politicians. So a controversial question to you. How green is the drinks industry and what lessons have we learnt from COP26? Good question, Donald. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, when businesses are, are in survival mode, the green investment tends to to get swept away a bit when we're trying to survive through what we're doing. Um, there is the deposit return scheme going through at the moment, and we don't know when that's going to come through, which will which will be a big investment for a lot of places. I think 
personally, I think we've got to try and do whatever we can. I think everybody agrees with that. It's just a matter of trying to channel all these different ideas through. I think, you know, the, the COP, whole COP sort of ended, I thought, on a very pessimistic note. But I think Greta Thunberg's blah, blah, blah phrase has sort of became the watchword for the Glasgow COP, unfortunately. Um, through no fault of Glasgow's, of course, I must add. But um, I think we've got to try and get some strategy in place. And again, you can't just ask businesses to suddenly turn around and find the investments, you know, the money for the investment in these things. You know, you can't keep doing that. You've got to give something back to the businesses to give them the, the financial enthusiasm to do, you know, whatever it takes. If it's a deposit return scheme, fair enough. Well, talking of helping your business, do you think the uh, highly trailed extensions of COVID restrictions that are likely <laughs> come in this week... Um, will be good for business. Do you agree with it? Yeah, well, we, together with other trade associations, we did a survey which actually reported this week and the figures are pretty stark, if you're asking. So 200 businesses approximately responded. Um, 80% of them said they're still carrying significant debt. Figures didn't make good reading. 76, so if, if we extend vaccine passports to the wider, past the late opening premises, 76% of those businesses said they wouldn't survive the winter without further government support. So that's three quarters of businesses said that. 95% said they would cut staff hours and wages through that. So I think if you look at who's got the vaccine passports at the moment, 95% said they'd be negatively impacted between 20% and 40% loss. You know, there's a whole raft of figures here we don't want through all them. But I think that's the headline figures and that shows you the resistance from from our side for this. I think if you go down the route of it's either that or you're closed. Well, you know, if you're taking it in that way, we'd, we'd rather be open. So it's a mishmash. But those figures are, are, are very, as I said, are very stark and worrying. I, I think the worrying part of this, I think all the indicators in the last few days probably been that they are going to extend the passports you know, to more premises. Well, was that not a terrible situation for us to be left in when they said the words used were some hospitality venues? Yeah. I think that was the words the first minister used. We're going to get, we're going to get that. We, we had the passports come in the 18th of October. There's another announcement next Tuesday for commencement on the 6th of December. Now, I mean that cannot be right to leave us hanging. We don't know who's going to be open. So in my business, for instance, I'm going to have 30 people arrive for a Christmas party night. I've got to have door stewards on duty, which I don't usually have. If two or three of them don't have the passport, I've got to get the door stewards because nobody else can ask them to leave under the way the, the thing's structured at the moment. So what do the other ones do? Do they all walk out? Do I give them their money back? Will, they, will the 17 stay and the 3 not? What, what, what sort of position are we left in? We don't know where we're going. We, don't, we can't prepare properly. So, you know, that, that, that was a, a, a really bad situation. So what do you think is the rationale for this timing? Stuff? We're trailing, we're, you know, say just 
the week previously, they're saying, oh, we're delaying the decision till this week coming and then it won't take effect till December the 6th. Is there any rational explanation for that? If it's, you're either got a crisis and we need to do something or you don't. I don't have an answer to that. I can't, I can't think why anybody in the one time of the year, we all know it, we need to be busy then. We've got January, February. We've got to be busy at that time that they're going to introduce this. If it's purely based around the figures, there might be some logic there. But to leave it another week and then say, against what we've told them, again, it's going to be some places. Who are these? What are these some places? Is it, is it, is it community pubs who will then need doormen on them? The wee pub at the corner will need doormen because the way the, the guidance is structured, only doormen can enforce this. And it's security authority badge doormen are the only ones that can do it. You can't have somebody working on a door unless the security's authority badge. And I guarantee, Paul, if they made that the rule tomorrow, there wouldn't be enough. No, there's no staff. Can't get the staff at the moment, the doormen at the moment. Never mind. If everybody needs them. It's unworkable. It's totally unpractical, yeah. If it's all based on the figures, and I'm bringing Tom and Willie in, that's a bit controversial, COVID infections are now almost on a par with the flu. Should we be asking people to have a flu jab passport? <laughs> well, two weeks ago, I had to go for my booster and my flu jab at the same time. And I can only tell you the following five days is worse than the five days I've had my life. <laughs> Right, the effect that it had on me and so many other people that I know. In fact, when I heard some of the other stories, I was feeling sorry for myself, then I felt okay when other people were telling me they couldn't walk and they couldn't do this. Now, that's not to discourage people not to, to get the, the, the jabs, which I would definitely encourage them to do, but there is no doubt that um, it's not widely known out there the effects that getting the, 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 the jabs are on, on people. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> I, I spoke to... Prof Evans who's been on the show and he said don't get the flu and the booster in, at the same time um, get them but mm -hmm. don't get them at, at, yeah. at the same time and I mean I think we've, we've got to educate but as I said earlier you know if if the vaccine passport is a strategy to drive up the vaccinations between a certain demographic then I get it you know there's this big Big Brother thing, which I don't like, but if there's a greater um, objective here and um, if I could do harm to others by not doing that, then there is somewhere where we can say, right, okay, you've got to do it. Um, so it's a really difficult one, really difficult one. Yeah. Another difficult issue that you faced was drink spiking. It kind of hit the headlines, but it went, really almost viral uh, to the point where I thought that every single club there was a risk and I remember having the debate with my daughter about going out and she was panicking and all my friends are look at this look at this how did you how do you react as an industry to that how do you tackle it and it seems to be every year round about freshers week when the students go back this hits the headlines it's not new it's been going on for years you know we've had a lot of We've, we've taken a lot of steps to try and eradicate it. We're absolutely determined to, to stop it. So, you know, we, we try and... We've, it's got more awareness now that it did have. You know, we have, we have caps for tops of drinks and straws and 
So the, the big difference this time is this injection, which is really worrying. Um, and I don't want to underplay it. We don't, first of all, we don't know the exact extent. It's probably a lot worse than it's reported because a lot of people are embarrassed to report it. So it, it could be a bigger problem we know about, you know, which we don't want to do because, as I say, it, it, I think the figures are, are underplayed. But this injection, which I've heard doctors say it's almost impossible to inject somebody with these drugs and for them not to know about it. But then again, you don't want to underplay it. What can we do about it more than we're doing? There are there are strips that you can put in drinks that tell you if they're if they've been tampered with. The police in England are starting to carry around kits. I think it's only a matter of time if the problem persists that we will certainly look at getting strips, the testing strips into premises because we're absolutely clear. You know, it's a terrible situation to be in. Paul, and it stops like, confidence again. People stop coming out. I think what's probably more important is is talking, as I'm trying to do with my daughter, about what actually the industry does. I mean, we know, and, yeah. You know, it's changed days from 10, 20, well, from, I say, 40 years ago since I was clubbing. Such a safe environment <clears> these <throat> days. Paul Paul made the point about caps, all the things that you're trying to do to eradicate this, you know, for spiking of mm -hmm. drinks, mm -hmm. you know, caps and all that. Nothing's going to help if someone's going to jag you a needle. Um, clubs are very, I've got to say, so well run now. With I go back to the, the badge doorman. I mean, their training's five days training to get their badge. And then, you know, they've got to go through exams. And, and you know, so you've not gone back to the old days where you're the guy standing at the door with a bow tie ready to batter everybody. You know? you as a welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we've now, got, we've now got professional people working on our door, which is something that, that, that we totally endorse. That's what I'm, we I'm want. I'm glad you're going to leave us on a, on a high yes. positive note here, Paul. <laughs> well, yeah, we do want to leave on a high. So, you know, should we be positive for Scotland's hospitality businesses going forward? Oh, absolutely. I mean, not, the, the entrepreneurial spirit we've been talking about is alive and well in the licence trade. It's just a matter of getting us through this, which is very difficult situation, to come out the other end and allow that to grow and develop. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm very positive going forward. We're going to lose places. I get all that. The, the business will develop as time goes on the way it always has. You know, and we've got a great basis here to go forward, albeit... There will be a reset after COVID and it'll take a bit of time to get back to normal. And hopefully politicians will listen to us in the future and understand that, that we that that we want people to have the confidence to come into businesses. But we need the flexibility financially to, to help us let them develop. You said when you came into the industry, you couldn't have imagined the way the trade is now. Can you imagine what it'll be like Give us an idea five, ten years from now. What do you think will be the big changes? I think it will definitely be a business based on quality rather than quantity of... It's the quality of drinking and the enjoyment rather than just um, people going into premises, unfortunately, they used to just to get drunk. And, you know, so I think there's, a, there's an experience of going into premises. But those premises that look after their customers and know their market give good service and all the traditional things which are still relevant be the ones that will 
that will grow and prosper in the future. I, I think in five years that um, most establishments will be somewhere where you go for something to eat and you can get a drink there rather than just stand all yeah, I mean, I can see I can see the changing trends in, in my own place at the moment. Yeah. Oh, we, we're, we're busy, we're doing you know, really well, but you could actually close at half past nine on a Friday and a Saturday night. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're a publican that serves food or your restaurant to yes. restaurant to that sells drink. I mean, that's it's it. which is what we wanted. Yes, that's when all the yeah. opening came in yeah. and long time ago now gave us the opportunity to do food and yeah. to be to to have that flexibility with, and that's the way we wanted to go, and that's the way we are going. Well, I'll keep our fingers crossed that you continue to be a success and the industry moves forward positively. Thank you, Paul. After the break, we go into the boardroom where Tom and Willie answer your business questions and offer brilliant advice. If you want to take part, then simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. By business, for business. The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. If you've any questions you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. We're going to our phone lines and first up is Derek Mallon. Welcome to the show, Derek. Hi, how are you doing? Very well. Good. Tell us a wee bit about yourself uh, before you put your question to Tom and Willie. So I operate, um, amongst other venues, uh, for Santa Restaurant in Merchant City in Glasgow, along with a few other venues in Loch Tay and in Edinburgh and a couple of others in Glasgow, the Van Winkle units in Glasgow. So I've been in the hospitality trade for sort of 30 years. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's been an interesting um, 18, 20 months or so, that's for sure. Oh, indeed, I imagine it has been. Um, so, Gekko, what's your question for Tom and Willie then? So I, I would like to ask the guys, given the difficulties we're seeing in so many areas of the economy at present, um, how much of this would you lay at the door of Brexit? And do you think that business leaders should be speaking out more about the situation? Oh, great question. Willie? Morning, Derek. Morning. Um, I think it partly due to Brexit, but it's very difficult at the moment to to split off what's happening because of the COVID situation and what's the Brexit. There's no doubt in my mind, in my in my own experiences, that the supply chain has been affected because of Brexit, right? And I think it's probably hitting the hospitality and the construction industry more than most other sectors. So I would definitely say to you that once... Uh, MPs and MSPs um, are dealing with issues in relation to Brexit on its own. I think they should be speaking up 100% because there is no doubt that Scotland is going to be affected. Tom. Morning, Derek. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, Tom. How are you? Good, I'm fine, thanks. I'm fine. Listen, I've got a slightly different point of view in that as an entrepreneur, as a business person, then you've got to worry about the things that you can influence in your own business. And... Whether Brexit is influencing it or not, there's not a lot you can do about it. And as a 
business person, as someone who's a problem solver, you've just got to find ways run about what's in front of you for the benefit of your customers and therefore for the benefit of your business. And sometimes I know we can go on and oh, we want to blame everybody, but the really good business people just get on with it. Solid advice for you there, Derek. I believe you've got another question, is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and thank, thank you for those, thank you for those answers. But um, additionally, it was there's obviously a, a substantial shortage of workers, or so it seems, in in many areas in the UK. And what you know, what policies would you like to see from government in order to alleviate the pressures, um, certainly in the short term? So, Derek, I go back to my first point. <clears throat> I don't expect much from government, and I'm never disappointed. So. Because we can moan about government, and sometimes in this show we do, but we always try and come up with a positive solution. So I would say, yes, the market looks as if there's shortages of, in your industry, chefs or whatever, but you need to come up with policies to change it for your individual business. You can't even moan about the government. It's, it's just going to drive you mad. So you've got to come up with it, whether it's looking at, at the hours, looking at the training, looking at the wages... Whatever you can do to overcome that and beat your competition on it, that's what matters most. I'd like to see the government maybe do a wee bit more for young people trying to get into the industry. And, you know, to I've said it before about the, I think the apprenticeship levy is wrong. I think you should come up with a better scheme. Uh, I think that people who want to give young people meaningful apprenticeships should get more of a tax advantage. Um, in fact, I think you should be able to put the whole cost of apprenticeships against tax. I think that would... I believe during the week that Richie Sunak said that uh, he was gleefully announcing that over 100,000 people had got involved in their Get Started you know, jobs initiative. I'd love to know what the 100,000 jobs were. You know, you get loads of sound bites from uh, MPs, politicians and ministers. You're not questioning my Richie, are you? Here, <coughs> yes, Willie. I certainly am. And <laughs> so, he's, he's not going to be in the spotlight for very much longer, is he? No, no. <laughs> Willie, earlier on the show. Can, can, can I ask you, that, what, what, is, have you got any ideas? Back to Tom's point, what would, what would you like, if you'd one chance to ask the government to do something, what would it be? Um, I, I think that, um, you know, Going back to um, what um, Tom said, yeah, I, I completely agree, and, and and that's very much been our attitude um, on on both points. Is really that um, you know you, you have to find ways around this. Um, I, I think when it comes to um, the, the the shortage of workers, then you know there are um, there are limitations in what's possible. I think that um, I think Willie, your um, observation around um, you know tax breaks on on employment is, would certainly be the most welcome. You know, I think certainly for the hospitality industry, you know, whether it's in normal times, you know, whether it's um, rates or operating on high streets or, you know, trying to keep up with competitive um, wages has always proved pretty difficult. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of innovation out there. There's a lot of people who are going above and beyond and sort of, you know, whether it comes to training or, you know, working conditions or, you know, the sort of hours that people are working. You know, I think there's a lot of that comes into play. But I think that um, what we have seen Seen, um, is that the the lack of workers from EU countries has had a big impact, and we see that in the rural locations in particular, but um, also in the city centres. So you know, there's been a lot of 
a lot of requests for you know temporary visas for you know for uh, butchers or for HGV drivers etc and you know I, I can't help but think that um, you know does the UK as a whole um, have an issue with the you know just the amount of people here and the vacant jobs that are still to be filled and therefore should more consideration be given to you know, allowing people into the country and and maybe that is short term visas or maybe it's under thirties or you know I, I guess that's for that that would be for a government to decide but um, it's um, it's clearly having an impact in so many areas at present. Really. I think that one of the harshest things that's going to happen to the hospitality industry is is that because of COVID, more so because of furlough, I think a lot of people in the hospitality industry who realise that they may have been working, you know, let's call it antisocial hours, you know, that chefs now think there's more to life than being stuck in a kitchen on a Friday and Saturday night. I think young people working seven tables and seven drinks, they've had a lot of, they've had all that time off on a Friday and Saturday. And, you know, I think you would agree, everybody agrees now that, you know, a lot of chefs have found a new way of living. I, I know two chefs myself personally who have been totally happy to take about an £8,000 a year cut in wages to keep doing the new jobs that they've found rather than going back to being chefs. So I think there's going to be a whole rebalancing of this whole social aspect of uh, what we call working antisocial hours. So I, I think that this is going to be a big, big problem for the hospitality industry. Or a big opportunity. Yeah. Because if you come up with a way to solve it, um, Derek, then you're going to beat the competition and you're going to be successful. <laughs> Quick question for you, Derek, because we've been talking earlier on the show about uh, the likelihood of COVID restrictions um, being increased and you've got a number of venues. What's your view uh, if we were to have COVID passports introduced to cinemas, theatres and virtually all licensed premises, including restaurants like yours? Yeah, I mean it's 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 obviously a, a, a real concern. Um, it's you know it's 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 a lot better than being closed down. Um, the introduction yep. of you know the extension of the of, of the, uh, the sort of COVID certification scheme. Um, you know, it's it's been it's been a few months since I tuned in just to you know specifically to to hear what was said. So it was a bit of a disappointment for that to be to be put off for another week. Um, but we will we will wait till Tuesday, and um, I, and I guess it's um, you know it may well affect um, some venues more than others if the. The nightclub scene is anything to go by, or if the reports were true, then you know that's pretty concerning and. Um, yeah, it will certainly put another dent in the hospitality industry. To what extent, I think, remains to be seen. And it probably depends on what the extensions look like, if there are, if there are any, and, and how long-lasting they are. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, it's not as much bad news as we maybe uh, fear. Thank you for the call, Derek. Thanks, Derek. Thank Good you. luck. Thank, Thank you. you, Derek. Good luck. Thanks, gents. So, Nicholas Sturgeon has been posting a fair few selfies of her and various celebrities and politicians at COP26. Um, somebody said it could be up to about 50, but never mind. I just thought it maybe be a wee interesting question for you. Have you ever been starstruck and what's your most famous selfie, Tom? Oh, I'm going to go into thin ice here. And the thing I remember is Marion and I were at Dumfries House with Prince Charles and Ant and Dec were there. 
<laughs> and doing a doing an ITV documentary. And my wife never gets starstruck. But when I said, Do you want to speak to Ant and Deck? She went red and she wouldn't speak to them. <laughs> and she's gonna kill me for that, Willie. <laughs> I've never will. I've never asked MD for a selfie in my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <no>. Never. <laughs> so that's a quick answer to that one. Do you, do you think she'll be going for another selfie with the uh, the Greens now that she's uh, made that Campbell decision? Or at least expressed her view on what shouldn't happen or should happen? I think she's probably had a few selfies with the Greens. Um, probably with that announcement, maybe a few shandies with the Greens. But unfortunately... Tam, can I get a selfie? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we've time for, but hopefully you've enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback for us or you want to know more about how you can get involved, visit thisisgo.co.uk. Don't forget you can put questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.